Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. This morning, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Kirsty Ritchie. Kirsty, you are so welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. It took us a while, but it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we were joking about persistence and patience, but uh, yeah. <laughs> that's what got us here. Where are you, Kirsty? by the way? Up, I know you're in Scotland, but whereabouts? I am bang in the middle. I'm in Edinburgh. Yeah, ah. but I'm actually I'm actually from the borders. Um, you might not recognise with the accent. Something come from sort of Aberdeenshire area. But I'm actually from a small town called Hoyk in the Scottish borders. But I've lived in Edinburgh about twenty something years now. Cool. It is one of my favourite European cities. I think there's something just gorgeous about Edinburgh. It's wonderful, actually. Coming from a small town you get a sort of a bit of both you get a little bit of small town feel but actually it's big enough if you want to get lost as well yeah 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 it's lovely so Kirsty, we are going to really talk about your life beyond the numbers because i know you have a background in accountancy much like myself and we might touch on that a bit later but your current work your company is mind and mission And on on your website, it centres around mental fitness. And I'd love to know what that means. So mental fitness is, it's fundamentally about taking control of our psychological and emotional well-being. Some might call it emotional intelligence. That's a term that's, that's being banded about now. For us, mental fitness is is taking it further than that. It's our ability to improve our overall health, our work performance, our whole life by identifying, by managing the foundations from which we build our well-being. You know, it enables us to engage effectively with with others, to engage with our environment to manage relationships positively, to communicate well, um, to be fulfilled, to be motivated and to be optimistic. And my goodness, do we need that right now? But first and foremost, I think what is so important is it is about owning your own health. No one else will do that for you. It is absolutely about owning that. It starts with strong foundations. That's what we... Uh, work with with individuals and when you know what those foundations are you can start to take steps to assess and to improve them where where it's necessary and what is so important that we don't just look at 
where you need to improve, that you actually look at your strengths as well and you can work on using those strengths to support some of the areas you might want to develop. Wow. So, I mean, it's a very all-round approach, a holistic approach to living a better life, I guess, in a way, yeah. or finding what, finding a better way to live even maybe. But you mentioned strong foundations. Does that mean that somebody needs to have already strong mental health when they come to you to work with you? Or is there a difference between working with people on mental health and working on mental fitness, if you know what I mean? It's, well, between mental health and mental fitness, there's no distinguishable difference. We made a conscious choice to use the term mental fitness, but we interchange it. Mental fitness strikes the right tone for us. Unfortunately, there, there is still stigma around this term mental health. Even when I tell people this, it was months and months ago, but I was watching something, I can't remember, an interviewer, journalist, and they said, he's a man suffering from mental health. And I just, oh, I let out that sigh where you just go, oh, really? You know, if, if journalists, presenters can't use this term correctly, it is not doing anything to remove that stigma. So we chose the term mental fitness because in our mind, it's positive because we think of it in connection with our physical fitness. And our hope is that one day we consider going to a psychotherapist in exactly the same way as we wouldn't think twice about going to a personal trainer. So when we role model that positive language, the internal language of, of others starts to change. You know, and, and I will admit absolutely that in some ways we're sort of pandering to it a little. But I think, and why fight a term? It's had negative connotations for so long. Why fight it? Even where we are now, where we're in that place where there's so much more awareness, it's never been higher, but there's still stigma. So let's just build a more positive language around mental health, but it's absolutely interchangeable. So when people come to us, I'll get to your question. <laughs> when, when people come to us, they can be in, in, in any place. We work with companies, we work with individuals. For individuals, they could be in a very mentally unhealthy place. They, they may have taken a huge mental health decline. They could be in what we call crisis. And for that, we have a, a, a very different um, approach. We could have individuals who are just feeling that there's areas of their life that they want to do something about. Not sure what it is. Some have a very clear idea what it is. I've got one client, she's written pages and pages and pages of I do this and I do that and I want to change this and, you know, very, very aware of what is going on and what she wants to change. Others are a little bit, things are just not going right and I just can't seem to work out why I keep making wrong decisions. And then others are in the place where they feel pretty good. And they want to maintain that and they want to understand a bit more about themselves, have a bit more self-awareness and understand how can I make sure that this continues, that I'm always looking after myself. And I love the image that you gave of or the metaphor even of a personal trainer, you know, and a psychotherapist that actually you're choosing to be fit 
and you know yeah. you can't do it alone and that there's nothing wrong with that. Because if you were going to a gym to get fit, you'd happily work with somebody else to help you get there. So yeah. it feels like you're because you said about taking ownership and I can really see that how it feels like you're taking responsibility or ownership for your own mental health and well-being by seeking someone out that can provide that. Yeah, and what we have to make very clear sometimes with clients is there can be this incorrect assumption that uh, a therapist or a coach will fix things for you and we make it very, very clear that that is not the case because you don't have um, agency then. You're not owning your development. You're not owning the change, you know, expecting someone else to to fix whatever it is for you it's about helping and guiding you through your own self to understand what is happening for you and what you can do to change it and it's actually it, it it's more than that for us as well we're about living values and that, that that's okay you know, to be who you are, um, bringing back humanity, human conversations to the workplace, yeah, making sure that workplaces are psychologically safe places to be. And all of this allows us to thrive. When we perceive that we have some control over that emotional state, we can overcome anything. Absolutely. And I, I love that phrase that you used about... Um through your own self. How do people react to that? Because it feels almost counterintuitive to when you go to get help that you everything around you is, is causing your turmoil as opposed to you perhaps. So how do people feel when you explain to them that it's going to be through their own self? It is. It's an interesting one because again, we have this range of clients between crisis and, and those who are actually wanting to prevent um, mental health decline. And how do they respond? Most individuals that come to some kind of therapy or coaching have taken that personal decision to do something about their lives. So they've already taken that responsibility. They have taken ownership accountability for their own health they've made that first step what we are doing is sort of building other layers on top of that it's about helping them to understand that they do have that power and that they are able even if they are in crisis that they are able to explore and understand themselves better and that is our job, is to guide them through the process. So we talk about the client owns the agenda and the coach, the, the therapist, owns the process. So whatever the client, we talk about client-led, your client-led therapists and coaches, they bring the agenda, the topic, whatever is on their mind at any moment, and we help steer that and help that process of understanding with them. Power is a powerful word as well, isn't it? And yeah. I would imagine many of us feel powerless quite a lot in our lives. So to yeah. actually feel like we have power 
or we have the ability to be powerful, it's powerful in itself. Yeah, it, it comes back to that agency and, and autonomy. So part of the psychological theory that, that we learn at school, at psychotherapy school, is this term self-actualization. And when we have our, all our, our basic needs met, the, the sort of pinnacle, the top of the mountain, is what we call self-actualization, our ability to be the best person that we can be. And that requires autonomy. That requires our own self-power, you know, to, to use that term. And that's where we then have what we call our natural dopamine, because to be able to do that gives us a chemical release of dopamine ourselves. So what we're helping people to do is to find that for themselves. Wow, that's brilliant. And we were just before we pressed record, we were talking briefly about some of the programs that you do. And I'd love to hear you just talk about those very briefly with the women returning to work and the agriculture program, because they sound so cool. Yeah, it's, it is incredible. And you might have to stop me because I could talk all day. It's, it's not work that, that we envisaged we were going to do. We've been going for three years now and we were approached by a, a couple of women that we met uh, while networking. They saw a couple of government programmes coming through and thought adding a layer of mental health support to those programmes would really set it apart. Uh, it turns out the government thought the same. So a couple of things that we've been uh, involved in this year, women returners. So we are specifically supporting women around 50 or who are going through menopause. So a very specific demographic. They have been out of work for six months or more. And what we're doing is Louise and I are adding that layer of coaching and uh, psychotherapy so that they can build back their, their confidence, they can build back resilience. So we call it Return with Resilience. And it's about helping them, all the things that I've just talked about, to see and to feel their own power and to be able to get back into the workplace feeling, you know, maybe it's sometimes feeling like they did before or maybe it's realising who they are now. And that can be very different. You know, sometimes we, if we've been out of work or made that conscious decision, maybe we you know, haven't had children or whatever, some of them have been out of work for 15 years. And they have this assumption that going back to work will be like it was. And we help them to find who they are now. And it's, it's just such a, a privilege. The women are incredible. They are inspiring. Um, they are powerful, intelligent, incredible women. And we just help them to see that and to start living that again. And the other one we're doing at the moment is called Women in Agriculture. It's titled Be Your Best Self. And we're putting 200 women through a programme of self-development, very much linked to the agricultural industry, supporting women to further themselves in this industry. The government have realised that with the gender gap, it is becoming difficult or has been for a long time difficult for women to thrive in that industry. So again, we are adding a layer of coaching and, and therapy to that programme, similar to the Returners programme, is to help the women see themselves better and to give them the tools and give them the strength 
to do whatever it is that they want to do. And it ranges, believe me. We've had we have not had two individuals who are the same or doing the same thing. It, again, it's just it's so wonderful working with such a diverse uh, group of women as well. And and that's we're almost halfway through that now. And again, it's ah, such a privilege. Wow. I was reading something recently about how Michelangelo used to say that every piece of stone, you know, a big piece of stone is a sculpture waiting to be the chips blocked off or whatever, knocked off so that that beauty emerges. And as as you were talking there about the women returning to work and how amazing they are, they just have to see it and you help them see it. That it reminds me of that. It's like chipping away all the crap that we've gathered over the years and, and letting it go. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's reminding them as well that just who they are is perfectly acceptable and to be comfortable in their own skin and to know that that's enough no matter what, because all, all the layers that, that pile on us over the years that it, it changes our perception of ourselves. So it's about helping them to see that who they are is simply amazing and and that is good enough for anyone, Absolutely. even themselves. Absolutely, mostly yeah. for themselves. And and that it's so interesting as well, isn't it? Because society is placing some of those layers as well with their depiction of how life Very should much. be. And, mm-hmm. and I think there, that creates a tension for people anywhere in their lives that if they're comparing themselves to what they should have or what they should be like, it's really hard to, 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 to move past that and ignore it yeah. because it's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. this assumption that women in their 50s are redundant in society and redundant in, in, in corporate world. And it's just not true. And we need to break down that that stigma and that barrier as well and this is part of it and it feels good to do something that even on a small scale it's just a dozen or so each time we run the program but that's a dozen women who just feel better about themselves and take that back into the world absolutely and that has a knock-on effect on everyone they encounter there's a ripple effect of that so it's not just those women it's it's the everybody that comes into contact with those women and that's very powerful as well yeah yeah and you're talking about 50 I'll be 50 next year and I can tell you in my head I am like in my 20s so (laughs) physically it might be different but the thought of being finished with with what's in store for me or anything like that is like it's just it's it's an awful thought so it's yeah ter- it's it, a terrible thing to tell people yeah it's amazing and, and I'm just a couple of years away from it myself and um it, it feels like a sort of hurdle doesn't it a barrier and I just realized that that's just a lot of nonsense I changed my career entirely in my 40s you know and it's I still look back and go, did I do that? Did I really do that? (laughs) And you should see Kirsty now. She's got the biggest smile on her face because (laughs) you have a background in accountancy. And what what happened? What changed? I know, like that head tilt, huh? What? (laughs) Yeah, completely. I, I, I sometimes 
um, say I, I, I used to be an accountant. I am still an accountant. I'm a chartered accountant. Yeah. I, I, I've had my own struggles with, with mental health decline. Don't get me wrong, I love accountancy. I am a geek. Absolutely. Give me a balanced balance sheet any day and I'm happy. But something happened to me as I started to climb the proverbial ladder and I've always sort of gravitated towards problems. You know, anything that was broken, I jumped in to fix it. You know, whether it was a, a team that was underperforming or a process that didn't work, I was front and centre. Um, I was also a lecturer back in the day when I qualified as an accountant. I thought that sounds like a great job. And I went off and I taught professional accountants for a while as well. And I think helping others was just in my blood somehow. I didn't know it at the time. It's only really on reflection now that I can see it. What happened was I was really struggling to be myself. When I see something that's wrong, uh, I have this urge. Um, I have to say something. And that doesn't really work in a corporate culture where you've got to toe the line, you've got to suck up to the right people, you've got to agree when everything tells you it's wrong. You know, it's that don't ask questions, don't disagree. And I couldn't really work out how others couldn't see that they were being forced to conform, you know, to, to agree because one person says so. So in other words, there was no psychological safety. There was no what we call rewarded vulnerability yeah it was one way or the highway that was it and I I just lost my passion for that not for the job not for what I was doing but the, the culture that I was being forced to accept and I'd been you know in this for 25 years and it just it broke me in the end and and my final experience was was a pretty negative one um I, I suffered harassment from senior management and at that point I had just had enough I just I couldn't do that anymore and then it just like it so it was that I, I have to do something about this um, again it was a problem you know I had to fix it and I heard uh, so this was during my recovery I'd heard on the tv um about no it was radio about a psychotherapy course and I just thought oh that could really teach me about myself that could help me understand what happened I'm an analytical person I had to understand and so I applied got onto the the, the course and I met my business partner on day one um, and we were just so in tune about our experiences in big corporate and the more we talked the more we realized it was just oh we could really do something here you know, this feels different. We realised that we're quite feelings-led, even though I'm this structured, crazy blue person who is about balance and numbers and everything working and structure. I'm also really led by, by feelings. And the more we talked, the more we thought, we could do something here. We could try to fix this problem that is happening in corporate culture. We could blend our experience with psychotherapy. This is quite unique. And I've known Louise now for six years. Our business has been going for three years and it's pretty incredible. I look back and I just think, 
is this really happening? Um, did, I, did I really do this? And I, I wrote a, a blog on it at one point going, what's it like to change your careers in your 40s? And it wasn't that scary. At the end of the day, I, I left something that I loved, but I didn't love how it was making me feel and what it was doing to me. And I've now, I'm earning nowhere near what I did as a, an accountant, but oh, I'm so much happier. Um, and coming to work every day and going, wow, that was a privilege to have that conversation with an individual, to have that individual trust you to guide them and help them and support them. Every day I get a, a wow moment and who can say that they get that? It's pretty incredible. It really is. So much of what you say there, Kirsty, resonates for me and much of why I probably left the workforce like that as well. And an accountancy, I had I had gone from accountancy a bit earlier on because I just got fed up of how, oh, I suppose I was always just the numbers person and I, I wanted to have more of an impact and I worked with people more in my last number of years. But I, I I suppose I really see how there's no nonsense now in my day-to-day life. I don't have to deal yeah. with nonsense, you know. Yeah. I don't have to put up with crap and people talking nonsense and and, and pussy pushing around. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. and I and I re- you know we, you talked about psychological safety or mentioned mm. it, but I mean I guess I feel very strongly that the toxic cultures that we still have in workplaces and the poor behavior. I'm not sure that we're always addressing the right thing by just talking about mental health, for example. So we talk about how it's mental health issues that people have in the workplace, but I kind of feel like there's still a lot of bad behavior and toxic culture not being investigated or not being dealt with or not being overturned or not being under any spotlight because often if the person in charge allows that to happen, then it will happen until somebody does something about it. Yeah, it's a huge topic. Um, psychological safety is is out there right now. I could, again, talk all day about it. Um, I suppose to explain what it is, um, psychological safety is not new. It's not the next thing that we need to get a little bit of training on. It is an aspect of culture that seems to have just been disregarded over the decades or at best underappreciated. I uh, have a quote that I read recently. It was, uh, if I could just, if I could read it, and I think it sums up psychological safety. It's actually Theodore Roosevelt. This quote is over a hundred years old. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who is at the best known in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. And I always feel a little bit emotional when I read that, it, it says it all to me. It's about the person who is out there doing it and not all these people who are standing watching going, you're not doing that right. I don't like how you're doing that. Yeah, they're not in about it doing it themselves, though. 
So psychological safety, when we think about it in the workplace, it's where we feel accepted, we feel included, we are supported to learn, experiment, explore. We can contribute, we can find purpose, we're able to challenge all without the fear of repercussion. It's that belief that you're not going to be stifled, you're not going to be punished, humiliated for speaking up, for having ideas, for questioning, for making mistakes. Yeah. And at work, it's that shared belief that this is the case. It is a really powerful concept that I think we've just somehow completely forgotten about it. So to your question, you know, thinking about that toxic culture and I, I just find it incredibly sad and I experienced it on a daily basis. My lived experience, there was two things that existed. There was ignorance and there was tolerance of poor behaviours. Simple things, it could be micromanaging, it could be just inaction. Yeah, do nothing. Um, simply letting it stand. It could be alienating or demeaning people. It could be leaders just not taking responsibility. It could be punishing. It could be overtly or covertly. Isolating people, that, that's what happened to me. And it is seen as more of a leadership issue. And, and I think it probably is the case. You know, some of the work that we do, we remind leadership that they can wrongly assume certain things in relation to culture. Um, and if, if I can, just some mm -hmm. of the things that leadership wrongly assume um, is that what they see is what they get and therefore they overlook hidden talent. And that is definitely the place where um, we have neurodiverse individuals. We have a client who had some HR um, issues coming through and each one of them, the individual disclosed that they were neurodiverse, every single one of them. So it was something that they just weren't tackling at all. They weren't having these conversations. Leadership can also assume that staff admire them just because they're the boss. Okay, not the case. You know, they can assume that they know better. Yeah, that they know better than the combined knowledge of all of their staff. They can assume that underperformance is always exactly just that. They can assume that staff feel comfortable disclosing. Not the case. And they can also assume that this kind of concept of an arm's length relationship at work means that you can't or you absolutely shouldn't connect personally with anyone. So when you assume all of these, the culture is one of elitism, yeah, and not one of empathy. And, and it was and conformity. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it's that them and us yeah. culture, isn't it? We're up here on our uh, ivory tower, uh, you're down there doing the work, we know better, you don't. And that's where psychological safety can fall apart. So the change has to start with leadership. You know, they, they have to listen and see what others see. Yeah, hear what they hear, feel what they feel. That's empathy. Yeah, the, the ability to see yourself in someone else's shoes, it's not the same as sympathy. Sympathy is about feeling sadness for someone else's misfortune. Empathy is putting yourself in someone else's shoes and trying to feel what they feel. 
And that is what is coming through. I read a great book and I dug it out because I, there's another great quote. I promise I'm not just going to give you loads of quotes here, but it's I called Leaders. Yeah, it's called Leaders in Lockdown by, and it was Athel Duncan that pulled together um, a whole lot of global leaders' opinions of you know, what is going on through lockdown. Um, and this one is, is from Lena Nair, who is the HR chief at Unilever. Yeah. So not a small organisation. And she says, where is it? Being kind, being compassionate, being empathetic, being inclusive. No longer is the leader the one who has all the answers. The first thing they do is listen and acknowledge the pain and answers will follow. Empathise, walk in their shoes, lead with no hierarchies, be willing to be humble and curious. These are the leaders who are succeeding at this time. We have undervalued these things in the past because we liked leaders chasing for growth, talking at profit, and adopting the Superman style of leadership. I love that. Mm, mm. I love that leaders, progressive leaders, are really recognising this. And, and you can see with out in New Zealand as well, and how they how they coped with the onset of the pandemic that time. You had a quote from Theodore Roosevelt earlier, and I yeah. have one from him as well about how. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. I love that one as well. Yeah. yeah. And it if we really thought, resonates. yeah. And if we thought like that, then we would just approach the world of work so differently. I mean, I why, why should I work for you? Why should I work hard? Why should I go over and above if you don't care about me? Yeah. It's yeah. really it simple. It's literally just going to say the same thing. It seems so simple, doesn't it? What went wrong? I'm not saying I lose sleep over that question, but it's it's one that's constantly in my head. What went wrong? Why did we suddenly become this corporate culture that is cutthroat and just stopped being personal? Uh, again, I wrote a blog around it is personal, not business. Oh, personal. Everything's yeah. personal at the and, end of the day, isn't it? And and when we're happy, it's such a simple um, effect that when we're happy, we perform better. So why wouldn't you, as a leader, want everyone in your organisation to feel happy? And it's fear. And that, that's where it comes from. It comes from a fear of oh, so many different things. Again, it's assumptions about leadership. What, what makes a good leader? There's so many different aspects to it, but things like that building block, block of having trust, having your people trust you. You know, I think leaders underestimate what they have to do to gain trust. And again, they assume that just because they're the boss, people trust them. I, absolutely. I, I think about this all the time because engagement levels are so low. There's like 80% of people are disengaged in the workplace. And if you trust, if you're at work and you trust your team leader, you're 12 times more likely to be engaged. Mm. That's massive, like absolutely yeah. massive. And you're right. People think because I'm in a position of authority, I have got everyone's trust. And I think trust yeah. is a bit like respect, isn't it? It's It has to be earned. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. And, and there's an equation for it, which I like. Because you know, oh, we're yes, structured that way. Um, so the trust equation—it's not mine. It's it's everywhere on the internet. I can't remember who came up with it, but here's hoping I can remember it. It's 
reliability plus credibility plus intimacy divided by self-orientation. So I think the reliability and credibility, we can sort of understand that concept, you know, being reliable, doing what you say you're going to do. Um, credibility, absolutely, showing your worth through your actions, your role modelling, um, what you're capable of. Intimacy is about how you make people feel. That is the psychological safety part. And then self-orientation, you know, the trust will be diluted if you are focused on yourself and not on others. Oh, yes. So absolutely. I really like that. And whenever you think about building relationships, and especially from a leadership context, if you looked at those separate components, it's a great model for really understanding yourself. You know, do I always carry through on the things that I promise or say I'm going to do you know really really simple examples like again on, on zoom meetings if you turn up five minutes late what does it tell people yeah if you have an hour meeting booked in your diary and you know five minutes before you go oh I can only give you 30 minutes because I've got something else on what is that telling you you can see automatically why that is going to dilute and, and it's going to make people distrust you yeah so I, I like, not just because it's an equation, but you can just see the different components and you can work on those. You can. And and it's also about paying. I like that. It's paying attention to people, actually giving yeah. them your attention, paying them <laughs> attention. And, yeah. and, and that's invaluable. Yeah. And it's yeah, so and easy I, to do. And put the phone down, turn... It drives me mad when people have pinging things on their laptops, like the emails are going off or whatever. If you're, yeah. because you know that people aren't there in the room with you. There was someone did a, a survey on LinkedIn. Can't remember who it was, so I can't give them credit, unfortunately. But it was a survey of about three or 4,000 people through on LinkedIn. And the question was, it was a yes or no question. Are, are you basically multitasking while you're on Zoom calls, remote calls, 80% said yes. <gasps> and that kind of made my blood boil a little because how are you creating rapport with people? How are you uh, creating trust in relationships? If I was sat here talking to you and actually I was looking down at my phone or, oh, there's an email coming, I'll just sort of answer that email while you're chatting. I mean, how disrespectful is that? I was really shocked at that. I was surprised that the number was quite so high and it was quite a large three or 4,000 people. I, I was a bit shocked at that um, and a bit worried that that's what, what, what people are doing. And I think the, the other side, I would think about that as well, is whoever is hosting that meeting is not engaging people either. So there's there's two yeah. sides to it. It's like mm. it's just boring and running on and on and unnecessary. So I don't feel like I need to pay attention. And also, I just I'm so overworked. I don't feel like I need to pay attention. So yeah. there's a few different perspectives there, isn't definitely, there? Definitely, definitely. And again, I, I wrote about this with the, this concept of single tasking and multitasking is we've gotten into this habit of always thinking that we've got to have four or five things on the go at a time. And I do it myself and I catch myself in the act and going, seriously, Kirsty, yeah. 
one thing at a time, you know, and it's been proven scientifically that our brain cannot do five things effectively. Yeah, it's we can't like even do two. <laughs> it's like we're. I think we're. I'm trying to remember the specific statistic, but it's something like we are thirty or forty percent less productive if we try to multitask. I think that's pretty significant. It's to massive. think that if we just focus on one thing at a time, will we be you know a third or more more effective at what we're doing? Yeah, and I also, like that idea as well. The brain isn't doing two things at once. It's going between both things. Exactly. exactly. And I know a lot of people who would disagree with that. Oh, yeah, so do I. Go, and I'd be going, here's the science. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, Kirsty, it's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you. How would somebody connect with you if they want to know more? So we have our website, mindandmission.com. Uh, I can be contacted directly at Kirsty at mindandmission.com. Um, you can search for me, Kirsty Ritchie, at, on LinkedIn uh, as well. So, yeah, anything around mental fitness, whether you are an individual or uh, an organisation looking to do something, yeah, I would be happy to hear from anyone, even if you just want a chat and a coffee. There you go. You might have to wait for a while, though. I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only joking. I'm only joking. <laughs> it was worth the wait, Kirsty. It's been really lovely to speak to you this morning. And I think yeah, I, could, I could talk to you forever, I'd say. And yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, actually. Yeah, I, I can talk all day about this stuff. It's It's a real... It, it's not it's not just my profession it's a passion as well I know people say that and it's you know quite glib sounding but but it really is and I hope that that comes across as well that this is you know this is my life it's not just a job yeah it's been my pleasure thank you very much for your invite all those months ago it's it's been really good that we could catch up and we can do this it's brilliant and it does come across I mean you're the picture of happiness and health you really are <laughs> And Kirsty has the most gorgeous red hair. No, it's not real. It's uh, it's fake red. <laughs> my, it's my, my, son, my son says, "Why have you got iron brew hair?" <laughs> um, and I'm like, "Because I like it." <laughs> it really suits you. It's gorgeous. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you so much, Kirsty. You're welcome. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from, or questions for me, please drop a line to susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider leaving a review.